Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to A Table Talk. This is a podcast of the beloved community, and it is good to be with everybody on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Today is November 1st, 2023, and my name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the beloved community, along with Alice Williams, who is also joining us on today's call. And today we're going to be discussing the topic, clergy trauma. And the reason why we wanted to host this topic is because we know that the last three to four years have been very challenging for clergy in the Florida Conference and beyond, especially with disaffiliations, racism, homophobia, sexism, and other traumatic events. And so I've been doing my own work to find healing from the trauma that I've experienced, and I wanted to promote wellness among my colleagues, and that's why I invited clergy and other mental health professionals to address the emotional and psychological challenges that we face. And so we have three special guests. Actually, we have four special guests. First, we have the Reverend Christy Holden. She is an elder in our conference. And along with her church, she also serves as a spiritual wellness coach and professor of contemplative practices at Florida Gulf Coast University. And I wanted to especially invite her because she knows the struggle of clergy, especially in the Florida conference. Then we will hear from Kathleen Joseph, She's a licensed mental health counselor. She's also my counselor, and she specializes in treating trauma um, and especially racial trauma. So she'll be discussing a little bit about racial trauma. And we'll also hear from Reverend Esteli Ramos. He's a local pastor of a bilingual church here in the Orlando area, and he's been a professor of social work at the University of Central Florida for the past 20 years. And he actually spent a significant amount of time studying spiritual trauma and he'll be speaking specific to pastors in the LGBT community, leaders in the LGBT community, and the trauma that they experience. And finally, we have Alice Williams. She's the co-chair of the Beloved Community and also the co-lay leader of the Florida Annual Conference. And she will be leading our Q&A time. So we're very excited to have four, four guests with us um, speaking on this topic. So if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. You can also raise your hand um, with the reaction button and we will do our best to answer your questions. This is kind of like a meeting, kind of like a Zoom call, so a little bit more informal and that's perfectly okay. Um, so please go ahead and feel free to ask your questions. First, we're gonna start with Reverend Christy. Um, Christy, thank you so much for joining us today and we look forward to hearing from you and I figured you'd be great to start with because you're here in Florida with us, you're experiencing what we're experiencing and I figured you could speak specifically to the trauma that we, Florida clergy are experiencing during this time. So the floor is yours. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the subject of trauma, which is something I'm uh, very passionate about, um, primarily because of the work that we've done uh, here in Southwest Florida with people who are not part of faith communities um, for um, reasons specific to spiritual trauma. Um, but as I've sojourned with my colleagues um, and processed my own um, experiences of challenge and hurt um, as, as a clergy person myself, it has been so important for me to process this stuff too. So I uh, hope that you'll find this useful. Um, you know, I think that when people think about professions in general that um, might be high-risk occupations for trauma or um, or PTSD reactions, we're thinking of immediately of people like firefighters, EMS, paramedics, um, healthcare workers, especially uh, we've seen that with our healthcare professions in the last several years with the pandemic. Um, 
folks who are, you know, kind of putting their life on the line every day, we, we think about those people immediately. Um, but it was really interesting to me to discover that Boston University several years ago, even before the um, before the pandemic, was beginning to do research on clergy trauma. And um, and even then, prior to pandemic stress, prior to escalated um, polarization politically in, in our country and, um, and prior to upsurgence of, um, of uh, animosity, if that's even a youth, that's a euphemism, um, toward marginalized communities across our country, even prior to that, 55% of clergy across, um, across the country participated in the study had scores that indicated um, PTSD was a concern, and uh, 30, an additional 35% met the criteria for um, uh, already for diagnosis. So um, taken together and extrapolated with all those other professions that I named uh, a moment ago, um, clergy, in, according to that study, would have the highest risk of developing post-traumatic stress of all of those professions is not wild and i mean we just don't we, we just don't think about it so i think i think the not thinking about it is itself the beginning of um how we can uh how we can address it being aware of that and beginning to think about it is the most important um starting place for us i think there are um kind of three big category reasons for why this might be the case for clergy and i um so i'd like to share about that um, first of all, um, as clergy, we are constantly exposed to trauma. We're exposed to pain and suffering, um, the dark side of uh, human behavior and um, and responding to people in times of crisis and deep um, human need. And these are difficult experiences to process, right? Um, we're often exposed to it. And that is alongside parallels alongside the fact that we are ourselves human beings at operative in this world that also experience trauma for ourselves, right? So whether we experience it directly or indirectly, we're in a position to absorb a lot of that um, energy, a lot of those narratives, a lot of um, a lot of those descriptions from the world, whether it's something we directly experience or whether it's um, by standing alongside our people. So, you know, think of things like physical or sexual assault, um, military action, uh, racism, terrorism, um, murder, suicide, death, um, difficult illness diagnoses, and um, the experience of walking people through um, end-of-life decisions, or even things that are more spontaneous, like life-threatening injuries or accidents. Uh, you know, we're the people that are supposed to show up to walk alongside people in those moments, and that is not easy to process. The second thing I would say is that we um, we live and function in a high-stress work environment, and I think um, our tendency among each other is to sort of laugh about that um, or maybe moan about that, but not actually process it too well with each other. Um, we, uh, we're also on insurance scales, one of the highest um, ranking professional groups for not taking good care of ourselves. <laughs> so so, um, so both were in this high stress pressure cooker environment and we're not that great about things that help mitigate the damage of that, right? Um, our diet, our sleep, our exercise habits are terrible <laughs> on the whole. So, um, uh, hence why our insurance rates are very high. But anyway, 
you know, those are those are things that could help us that we really struggle to engage with. So, you know, we we're constantly in an environment with very high expectations. Um, the the systemic church has high expectations of us. The local church has high expectations of us. The community at large, um, depending on who you're asking, especially among folks who um, have really had it with the church or who have had experienced hurt um, or pain from the church, their expectations are very high. Um, and so, uh, so constantly dealing with that, but we really don't have a lot of support. Um, now I say that from uh, within a context where I see a lot of my dear friends on this Zoom. So, you know, I hear and feel your support. Uh, but I, I think like in terms of the systemic support that we um, create in order to generally support our clergy, other professions do that really well. And that's an area that where we could grow. Um, so counselors have peer supervision, right? Uh, police and firefighters have departments or people they can go to, chaplains on call for them to be able to tell and process their stories and to be able to, to um, you know, uh, dispense the stress and, and deal with it. Um, but we don't so much have those processes in place. Um, Many congregations or, or many uh, denominations do have like EAP services attached to their health insurance, but we don't systemically have plans in place to regularly check in with clergy, help us tell our stories, um, hold us accountable to doing uh, in a positive way, right? Hold us accountable to caring for ourselves well so that we can uh, manage the stress in a healthier way. And um and having served on the Board of Ordained Ministry for a long time and in the executive committee of the Board of Ordained Ministry, I can tell you it's not good. Like what happens to clergy when they're overstressed and traumatized or when they've experienced things that they have not processed, it does not end well. Um, and it hurts a whole lot of people, not just that pastor or that pastor's family, uh, but it, it can become deeply impactful for all of us. So I think that's something that we can look at um, Nicola Davies, um, in her article related to occupational stress and PTSD, says evidence suggests that the key link between occupation and mental illness is high stress. This is the key link, right? Um, and that that high stress can increase the risk of PTSD, anxiety, depression, mood, and sleep disturbances. Um, and so looking at how do we care for each other becomes a critically important question. I think this is additionally complicated by all of the recent and very specific ways that our stress levels have been impacted by, um, by COVID and the other things that have escalated in our community systems of late. Um, but this is stuff that has been present all along. Um, so I hate for us to blame it too much on the last three or four years. We, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in us having a conversation about um, wholehearted, um, holistic health for clergy um, because the whole thing has been stressful always. Um, I think in, in, as a United Methodist, our itinerant system also adds a different kind of layer of complication. Um, there are some assets, right? There are some benefits to that system, but it's not without its costs. 
Um, I know I can speak in my own for out of my own experience. Um, not that I changed appointments this often, so I want to be clear about it. It's it's not because I changed appointments this often, but I had a stretch where I moved six times in seven years, and my children just got used to um, not going to the same school the next year. Like they just couldn't assume that they were going to be in the same place. Um, when I finally got to the parsonage where I am now and thankfully have been for a few years, which has been so delightful, it took me a full 12 months to hang a picture on the wall. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to, to put the energy into settling into the home. And so, um, you know, I think there are some very real and practical ways, those decisions um, that may be for the best of the system have different kinds and levels of impacts on us as individuals. Um, so looking at uh, how we can make the best of that and enjoy the assets of that as much as possible and mitigate the liabilities of, of that being our system, um, I think is another way that we can uh, that we can look at how to take care of ourselves. Um, and the last piece I would say is that we just really sort of lack training and adequate support systems that are built in. Um, most clergy, we aren't trained on trauma in, in seminary. We're trained in general pastoral care. We might have a passing conversation about trauma. Um, but as um, this becomes more and more an experience of our, of our colleagues and also of people in our churches, it's so important to be able to understand. And um, as I um, earned a certificate in spiritual trauma. It helped me so much to um, to understand the experiences of my people and how to respond to them better. So good pastoral care for a person who's experiencing emotional um, hurt or pain or angst is very different than for someone who's going through a traumatic experience. And the way I need to process after I've walked alongside them is different. So um, so I just encourage our clergy and our conference to do as much as they can to, um, to try to be educated about these things. Um, so here are some things I think that we can do. Um, first of all, uh, um, access to counseling and having congregations and staff parish um, committees check in with clergy. Um, regularly like monthly check in with clergy how are you what's how's the how's the level been lately right um has there been anything significant that's been particularly burdensome um and and developing a higher level of trust in those relationships so that we can uh, be honest about that um, um with our lay leaders and also with our colleagues um and and then having supporting regular access to counseling how are we funding that how are we making that available to people um more than just call your employer for a pick a name out of the book uh referral for you know your three free sessions right i i, I think it needs to be a more substantive relationship or where, where trust can be built if we're really gonna um pull apart the um the building blocks of trauma enough to to get at it to where it's not going to have adverse effects in that person's life thinking behavior um etc um i think that um the other thing we can look at is um how we show grace and um and intentionally give space for 
um, for pastors who, when they do have a moment like that, right? Um, how can can we as clergy teach our staff parish committees and our church councils, um, but also how can the conference help um, by, you know, kind of backing us up in this regard and also how the laity come alongside us and insist that when we have a particularly dramatic experience that we've supported a family in the community and something has happened, or, uh, or when we've gone through something personally ourselves that needs um, more personal care to process, that then there are options for extra time off or flexible hours or um, maybe a, a Sunday out of the pulpit or what, whatever it is that gives a sense of lift and ease and support. So there's a little more room for um, for clergy around the experience of the um, of the stressing events themselves. Um, so uh, that's just a, a quick flyby basic overview. Um, of course, uh, I could talk about it all day, but I'm so excited to hear um, from our other panelists and hear especially how um, uh, marginalizing identities add more complexity and more layers to, the, to that situation because it's that's definitely a different level of trauma. Thank you, Pastor Chrissy, for that great overview. And <clears throat> I'll also look forward to hearing from our next panelist. So we're gonna go ahead and invite Esteli. Esteli, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if you just logged in, uh, Reverend Stanley Ramos is a professor of social work at the University of Central Florida, and he specializes in spiritual trauma, and um, he's going to be sharing with us. And so, Pastor? Yes. Um, good morning. Um, I am Reverend Stanley Ramos. I also uh, pastor a church here in Orlando. Uh, it's an affirming church, uh, bilingual ministry uh, that services the Spanish-speaking community, so it's really interesting to um, uh, be able to work in that capacity. Um, I, I in, in addition, also work in private practice, um, both in pastoral care and in clinical practice with survivors of religious trauma um, within the LGBTQ community. And it has been quite a journey, um, both researching and practicing to be able to see what's happening within our own community um, with religious trauma. So I wanted to kind of like talk a little bit about what some of the findings are for clergy in um in with, within the lgbtq community um because uh clergy who are queer have found themselves on a journey uh that has been very long uh very painful uh there's been no no matter what denominational back, background we may come from um and and i do want to add as a, gra a graduate of the Kansas school of theology um that i have found the methodist uh in my community to be affirming and loving and embracing and i thank god every day for candler because uh, it helped me find my place in ministry. But I learned, I learned um, in the Methodist Church, I learned how at times it's a safe space. And just as quick as you found a safe space, you can step into a space that isn't safe. Um, and then that's when all the triggers of religious abuse and trauma start to come back into your life. And so um, in terms of ministry as LGBTQ clergy, um, there's just a couple of points that I wanted to make in my 10 minute uh, timing with you uh, to be able to identify and talk about some of the stressors. Um, the first important um, point is that the journey for queer ministers um, is a very long, difficult, and complicated journey. Uh, 
Uh, there have been times um, where your whole intersectionality as a queer person, and especially a queer person of color, uh, begins to fall apart. Uh, much of the religious abuse and trauma is related to the fact of your identity not being recognized um, or your identity labeled as thin, blasphemous, um, separate from who God wants you to be. Um, also, in addition to that is the religious leaders in our communities not affirming who we are uh, by not uh, performing um, marriages or not acknowledging us as individuals. And I think there's something that happens to any human. Uh, when you have to deny parts of yourself. And, and I always uh, share with uh, people that, you know, I, I am a Puerto Rican and I am a gay man who's married to another Puerto Rican gay man. I cannot stop being Puerto Rican. It's who I am, right? I mean, I, cannot, I can try to act, as we call it in the community, a coconut, right, brown on the outside and white on the inside. But the truth of the matter is that inside, I'm still who I am. And the same way my queer identity is a part of me, I cannot shut it off. Um, I have to be able to um, express that form of my identity because if I don't, then internally I begin to fall apart. And I think that is the first important aspect um, in any minister in the queer community to understand is that unless it comes together, unless your intersectionality comes together, then you're not able to develop as a human being. You begin to create a lot of avoidance behaviors. You begin to avoid certain people. You act one way in front of one group and another way in front of the other group. And it kind of creates these dual personality structures that are very unhealthy. Some of the research has shown that um, survivors of religious trauma within the LGBTQ community have some of the highest rates of addiction patterns, some of the highest rates of abuse. Um, uh, some of the highest rates of alcoholism and drug abuse. And a lot of that is because that internal struggle to find your identity just doesn't come together. Um, and so the first thing I need to be able to understand um, is that as a queer person, my intersectionality is very important, right? Um, some of the research shows that now within the queer community, there's a lot of discussion of being able to understand the concept of minority stress theory. And minority stress theory is uh, based a lot um, the research and the work that was done for communities of color, in, specifically in the African-American and the Latinx communities in the 60s and 70s, as um, people of color began to try to progress professionally and grow, uh, they were finding having to find themselves in a situation where they had to choose either or. And in so doing, especially if you're like a black woman who's a feminist um, and wanted to work in the feminist world that does not support of the black community as in black men, it creates this confusion um, and these levels of stress that lead uh, to unhealthy behaviors. And so now a lot of the research is starting to look at queer identity and minority stress theory as a marginalized population. Um, as we right now are in a very um, complicated uh, time politically around the country, uh, we're beginning to see a lot of policy uh, devolution in terms of LGBTQ rights. And that is creating a lot of stress and a lot of uncomfortable feelings for queer people. And I think that the first thing that begins to happen to you as a queer clergy person is you have to find your space of healing. You have to find a place where you can be able to understand that your creator loves you and accepts you for who you are. I cannot minister to other people in the closet. That's not going to work for me, right? I, I, I cannot talk about the love of Jesus if I don't understand that Jesus holy loves me as a person, 
Um, so the first uh, point is that I need to be able to find my space of healing. And family, that takes years for many of us. That's not something that happens in a couple of weeks um, or, you know, it's like going to an AA meeting and you find some steps that work for you and you work with them and in a couple of years you're doing well. This whole intersectionality coming together and finding healing uh, takes decades in many persons' lives. Um, and so the first and most important uh, part in this journey is to find your space of healing. Uh, and once you can find your space of healing, then you are able to move forward. And I must say that um, I, I, I grew up in the Puerto Rican Pentecostal church. Um, uh, that is very, um, that's not Latin Methodist. That's a whole different world um, in terms of the rigidity. Um, if you're from the African-American community, it'll be identical uh, to the Church of God in Christ, Kojic. Um, if you're in the European-American community, it's very identical to being Assemblies of God. Um, it's those type of religious fundamentalist backgrounds that I grew up in. And so it took me a long time just to be able to accept my queer identity. But once I found my identity and I was able to embrace it, then it was when I decided to go to seminary um, in 2014. And it was there where it all started to come together. It was studying theology. Um, it was being able to study um, the history, uh, the use of the word homosexual in scripture. It would blew my mind when I discovered that word wasn't invented until the late, 18, the late 1800s and that the writers of, of scripture had no idea what homosexual meant. Uh, and so I found a lot of healing in that journey. And then I believe um, once we're able to find that space of healing, of reconciling, of rebuilding our lives as queer ministers, then we begin to move out into ministry. Um, and that is, that is really a, a challenge uh, because there's sometimes where your, your ministry is in a safe place. And then there's sometimes where your ministry is not in a safe place. Um, and one of the recent encounters I had personally that was a part of my journey, and I had to sit back and do some meditation and prayer, was when the Pulse nightclub massacre happened here in Orlando. Um, I found myself being one of the few Spanish-speaking affirming ministers in Central Florida. Um, I found myself in a place where I was always having to work with a person who had survived serious trauma uh, with Pulse. And... Um, I particularly remember attending an event, and I'll try my best not to use any names out of respect. There was a large event held uh, by a very conservative church here in Orlando, a mega church. And within that church, um, I found myself sitting down with a bunch of other ministers, um, and they made an altar call, quote unquote. And in the altar call, um, when they made this call, they started to pray. And this is how they prayed. They said, Lord, we know you love them in spite of their sin. And when that happened, like the inside of me, like I, like, I broke out in a sweat. Like I started to relive my trauma and I had to withdraw myself because I realized I cannot sit in the stage with these individuals. I cannot be a part of that. So I knelt down beside the, 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 the two young ladies that came to the front for prayer. And I told them, don't listen to them. God loves you exactly as you are. So my closing point is, that as queer ministers, we find ourselves a lot of time, not only having to find our own healing, but, and, and also having to deal with our own trauma, but we find ourselves in spaces where we have to advocate over and over and over for our own community. And that can be traumatizing. So wrapping it all up, um, I think that there needs to be 
uh, a journey that uh, queer clergy must go through. And in that journey, uh, before you minister, you have to be able to find yourself in a healing space that allows you uh, to rebuild yourself and restore yourself in order to go forward. I believe we are all called by God and loved by God. And that each of us are, you know, God doesn't have stepchildren. I, I, I'm not a, a, a stepchild. Um, I am a full child of God. Um, and I think that once I find that space, then I find love and healing. Thank you for this opportunity. I think my 10 minutes are up. Thank you, Pastor Stanley, for your witness. And as a colleague of yours, a friend of yours, I just admire your resilience. And I thank you so much for sharing today. And I hope that this was enlightening for everybody who was listening. Um, we're going to move now to uh, Kathleen. Kathleen, are you there with us? Oh, I I hear you. Yes, Kathleen. we got you. Yes, we got you. Everybody. So everybody good? <laughs> we got you. Thank you so much. Everybody, can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? Fantastic. Um, I'm Kathleen Joseph. Thank you so much, Erwin, for inviting me to this wonderful uh, talk. Um, it has felt like a gift to listen to um, Reverend Christie and Reverend Gamos talk about their experiences. To start, I want to, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to share a presentation that I like to uh, show that talks about what it takes to heal trauma. I think that would be a good first step when we kind of think about how do we move forward from this place. I'd like to share some information about me. So I'm going to drop some information about me in the chat. Um, I just really love having these types of conversations. I also am a therapist that actively sees clients who want to heal trauma. Um, and so I'm putting information on how to get connected with me in the chat. I also put some freebies in there. The first one that says how to heal trauma, a presentation by Kathleen Joseph is actually the presentation that I'm going to give you. I recorded it in three parts. So if you put your email address in, you'll get that presentation and you can share it all over the world if you want to. I hope you do. Um, so let me share my screen. And while I'm Getting that queued up, I want to just share a little bit. Well, I guess I can get to that when um, I get to my presentation. So this presentation covers what it takes to heal trauma. Um, before we get started, I want to kind of survey the room really quickly. I want to introduce you to clinically what sort of the, if we looked at on the continuum of trauma, on the lighter side, we have a stress incident. And on the higher side, we have post-traumatic stress disorder. You might have heard this name, PTSD. I want to kind of sensitize you to what it means to have PTSD. So just maybe by a show of hands, maybe you could use your reactions button um, in the chat. How many of you knew that a symptom of PTSD is exposure to actual death threatened death, sexual violence, serious injury, that means being a victim of it, that means hearing about it, that means knowing somebody that it happened to. By a show of hands, how many of you knew that that was a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder? Okay, very good. Secondly, how many of you knew having recurrent thoughts of that incident that happened to you is a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder? How many of you knew that avoiding the thing that created that stress event 
is a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. So y'all are pretty good. Y'all are doing really good. A lot of folks that I treat don't realize that the stress events that they live with every single day are actually symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which changes the conversation completely. Because the folks that I see, they go, I just keep snapping. I just keep losing my, 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 my cool. I just don't want to go there. I don't, I, don't, I don't like those kind of people, right? These are normalized avoidance behaviors. These are normalized hypervigilance behaviors that people live with. And oftentimes they don't know that this is a sign of potentially, right, on that continuum. It could be post-traumatic stress disorder, or it might be you're dealing with some trauma symptoms that you're not acknowledging, which when I go through this presentation, you realize are essential to healing. So just a little bit about me. My name is Kathleen Joseph. I help my clients to understand how trauma has impacted their lives. And I consider the impact of trauma in the lives of each of the clients I serve. So I'm what's called a trauma-informed psychotherapist. I specialize in empowering Black women. So the, I work with all folks who want to heal trauma, but my specialty is working with women of color who want to do this work and live, have better quality of lives. Most of the clients that I serve come to me at, the, at a place of kind of like what um, Reverend Gamos talked about, a place of uh, I, I'm having inner turmoil and I'm experiencing some of these distressing symptoms. And then they come to therapy kind of saying, I need to do something about this. All right, so first to get, start, get started, I think it's important to anchor in to how people get traumatized. So it's important to name that our bodies deal with stressful events all the time. Um, when a stressful event gets to the point of, I like to, the good, the good bare minimum that I like to refer to is from Peter Levine. He's the innovator of somatic experiencing, which is a modality that is used to treat stress conditions, including trauma. A traumatic event is something that happened too fast, too soon, or too much for our bodies to handle. Folks, that could be a soccer ball that flew at me, and I just kind of I didn't see it, but sooner than, and then there it is, right? That could be a traumatic event. Over time, for those traumatic events, particularly that uh, occurred in the relational dynamic, we've heard some shares on how exposure to different things and, and, and sort of being marginalized, when that, 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 that happened in a relationship. And so when that happens over time, we begin to feel unsafe with ourselves and we begin to feel unsafe with others. During this time, we might struggle to regulate or soothe our emotions. Like I said, we become snappier. We might become more withdrawn. These are, it's important for me to, to name to you that these are not indications that something is wrong with you. It is probably that something is happening to you and it might require um, more, more attention. So to get us kind of kicked off on what it takes to heal trauma, I like to kind of, I broke this up into three steps. Um, the first one being establishing safety. And I like what you said, Reverend Gamos, you said, find your space of healing. It's the same thing. <laughs> establishing safety is the first step in healing trauma. And so to, to, to feel, to, to heal, we need to feel safe. And so healing involves regaining a safe a sense of safety and security. 
during this time, as we kind of consider what is our space of healing, what is not, we might want to ask ourselves, what part of my life needs to be stabilized? Is it time for me to renegotiate long-held boundaries with others and where? How are my boundaries with others? It's interesting because a huge, I feel like if I had to distill down my work, it's reassurance and teaching folks how to set boundaries. Um, it's worth naming that many of us who live with trauma today actually had adverse childhood experiences that happened to us in childhood and we just kind of layered traumas on from that time. And so when we think about how I formed relationships as a child, and I never kind of got any correction in that area, boundary work becomes incredibly important, right? So if I was violated in any way as a child, that undoubtedly changed my, um, we call it interoception, our, our sense of safety. It, it automatically changes that. and that persists across my life if I don't have other models. I think one of the main things that I want to leave you with as we go into step two is healing takes time and it's variable. So step two, uh, telling the story. Um, this is the hard part because this is the part where you might need to call a therapist. This is where we process the trauma. You might want to do individual or group therapy. I recommend seeing a licensed counselor that is trauma-informed. Um, I am actually friends with therapists and some of them are not trauma-informed, right? It's not a knock against them. It's just not their orientation. And so if you are looking for that type of work, it becomes important to um, get a therapist that can understand uh, and can hold those lived experiences with you. Here, some of the benefits of seeing a trauma-informed therapist um, a trauma-informed therapist understands how necessary it is to continue to attend to safety and stability. I think one of the worst things I can do to any client I serve is just to be like, all right, we're going to process all the trauma today. Go, right? That, how safe are you feeling there? Probably, probably not, right? And so for me, the, the, the key is in pacing. Um, storytelling can be incredibly risky. Let me just kind of invite you to consider, have you ever, for example, say you were driving and someone kind of swerves in front of you and you have that moment of, oh my gosh, right, shock. And then that moment passes, right? That happened too fast, too soon, too much, but you were able to kind of move through it. You were able to recognize that I'm safe, that was comfortable and I'm safe. And you go home and maybe you see your partner and you go, let me tell you what happened. And then you go into the story and before long, you realize you feel exactly how you felt in that moment, right? That's the power of storytelling. Storytelling has the, has the ability to transport us back into a moment that we're actually not in, in real life. Um, and so a trauma-informed therapist will understand that's risky. So what I would do in that situation is, hey, what's, what's going on in your body right now? How are you feeling as you tell me that? What's happening to you? And for some folks, it's this little break to go, oh, gosh, I didn't even realize that my heart was beating fast and that I'm talking loudly and that my hands are flailing, right? All the symptoms of activation. So I'm going to, for the sake of time, just go ahead and skip to three, which is my favorite part. Heal trauma, we kind of, it's this opportunity to renegotiate 
the boundaries and the structures with ourselves and with others. And so when we look at the third step, reconnecting to self and others, the trauma no longer becomes the defining and organizing principle of our lives. If any of you have had something that was very difficult that you had to go through, maybe you lost a loved one, maybe you were diagnosed with a, with a really bad chronic illness, that probably took up a good chunk of your attention every single day. When you finally move through that, you begin, it begins to feel smaller and smaller. And that's what trauma healing looks like. It's not the thing anymore. It's part of a tapestry of things. In that, in that space, we feel ready to take concrete, concrete steps towards an empowered life. And we may even notice a deeper connection to a, to a cause or a mission from which we can heal and grow. Locally here, um, I do some speaking for a local group. Well, they're a national group, but locally Moms Demand Action, which is a group that um, advocates for gun sense in our country. Um, and all their work with their, with their volunteers is about that third part, a deeper connection to a cause, because many of them are survivors of gun violence or have lost someone to gun violence. I think it's important to realize that trauma healing is an individual process that will look different for everyone. Just quick points right here, establishing safety, telling the story of what happened, um, reconnecting with ourselves and others, and remembering that healing takes time. Really appreciate um, your time and attention here again. If you wanna stay connected, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Erwin. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And thank you to um, Pastor Stanley and Pastor Christie. And we're going to go ahead and let Alice um, lead us in our Q&A. I have some questions and some thoughts already. Um, but Alice, go ahead. The floor is yours. So I just want to open it up and just say, is, does anyone have a question at this moment that they'd like to ask? If you would either put it in the chat or raise your hand so I can see quickly. And I, I, I will start us with one, Erwin, just to kind of get it going. Um, Reverend Ramos, I, I particularly as a, as a member of the queer community feel your pain and, and what you have gone through. My, my question is, how do you as clergy avoid from being pigeonholed? So, how do you think about not just being the gay pastor or allowing people to think of you as the gay pastor, uh, meaning that, that your your uh, mission field is, is limited to that, but but it's broad. How do you how do you address that? Um, I I well, I'm kind of like in a unique situation in that my church is predominantly queer right now, um, but I'm I'm very careful because I also have the experience because I'm Puerto Rican. Um, and then I'm the Spanish-speaking pastor. I only do Spanish-speaking ministry. And, and I always uh, try to avoid that pigeonhole and believe that, like, for example, Alabanza is a, a, a bilingual community. And so I always have to emphasize bilingual um, because then um, I've had a lot of um, non-Latin people say, God, I wish I could go, but I don't speak Spanish. I go, there's a reason why it's called bilingual, right? So I'm always having to explain myself and I think as a minister, it's very important for you to be able to present the fact that you have a calling in ministry and it's for all people and not just some people, but that you do have a special ability 
to reach out to the queer community. Um, but I will clearly find to whoever my bishop may be or um, who, whoever my elder may be, clearly define that, um, that the church is for everyone and, and, and not just for a particular person. So, so by verbally saying it over and over again um, is how I, I deal with that issue. Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, as our church struggles with our denominational issues, I think all clergy are gonna have to think about, you know, how, how do you avoid from being, uh, being able to serve all and, and not be categorized in a certain particular way. Uh, Erwin, I'm not seeing hands or anything in the chat, but so let's turn to maybe one or two of the questions you may have. Yeah, I definitely wanted to address this comment by Matt Wallace, and he said that it's hard to share openly with the SPR um, and so I wondered if somebody in the panel can talk a little bit about our relationship with SPR, creating a safe space with our SPR. Is that the space where we share openly? What kind of boundaries? So if anybody wants to share on that co comment on how it's, it's difficult to share openly with your SPR. And for anybody, for Stanley, SPRC is a staff parish and relations committee, and they deal with... Um, um, hiring, firing, and kind of some of the day-to-day -day administrative tasks of the church. Sure, I can I can jump in on that a little bit. So, um, I mean, the first thing is uh, you're you're not wrong to be careful about boundary setting with staff parish. <laughs> Um, and I, I saw those um, comments yeah. in the chat too, Matt, and a couple of other people commented about that. And and I would add that it's not, it doesn't always feel safe to share with our clergy colleagues either, which is stressful. I mean, that just in by itself is stressful. And I think um, compounded by the idea that um, that the nature of our work is to try to create safe spaces for our community to be able to do all the sharing they would like to do. Um, that then cannot be the place where we share all of our stuff. So, um, uh, you know, where it's possible to find uh, trust within laity and colleagues, uh, uh, my recommendation is just go where it's possible, right? We have to find it where we can get it. Um, and remember that the Church of Christ, you know, Christ's church, is much bigger than just our congregation or our denomination. Um, uh, and there are lots of people in the community that can and will be safe space for us, um, but we have to go and seek that out. So this is where uh, I know, you know, in my own career, my covenant group has become incredibly important, right? I've got a small group of ride or dies and they know <laughs> That, um, that I may come to them a hot mess and saying all kinds of foolishness, I would never let the rest of the world see in me or hear from me. And also they have full permission to say whatever they need to say back to me about that foolishness. <laughs> so, and or pain, I'll just put it that way, and or pain. Um, and they do. So, um, so uh, you know, the, those kinds of relationships become invaluable. Um, um, having regular professional outlets, um, find the people with the letters behind their names who are trained to do the stuff, right? Um, go find the social workers and the therapists who are trauma-informed that can help hold you and, um, and spiritual directors that can, can help you um, reframe specifically the element of it that, that ties to your own faith 
progress, your own faith development, and the way you're conceiving of your call and living that out in context. So those are things that have that have really helped me. Um, I, I would love, and this part of why I've been part of the clergy care initiative, I would love for us to be able to begin to have some very transparent conversations about this within the connection, you know, within our Florida United Methodist connection. I think that would be an incredibly important next step for us. Um, because we keep naming it. I hear clergy all the time naming this. I can't talk to my staff parish. I can't talk to the leaders of my church. I can't really talk to my DS or to my colleagues next door. I don't, I never know which one of them is going to be my next boss. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, figuring out some intentional strategies for navigating it, I think is important. It's we've done the naming enough, right? We keep saying it, but we're but we haven't yet taken the next step of okay. So what are we going to do to address that? And I I would love to see us work on that. Christy, I love what you're saying because it, it's um, it's work that we think the beloved community can kind of maybe help to be a step in the right direction with that. And Erwin certainly has opened it up with this today. Um, the other piece to this too is that I to your point, it's it's some of it's systemic. Some of it's just around the people, right? But if we can start to talk about some of even the systemic stuff and try to write and try to get them to merge together um, and, and have conversations around what SPRC should be uh, and, and there be some accountability and expectations and that kind of thing, I think that can help as well. It won't be the end all be all, but it certainly can be a step in the right direction. There was, there was another question uh, Ken just raised and that is, we're going through a period of disaffiliations in the church. But even after the disaffiliations, there's still the issue that the United Methodist Church, the language that's in the Book of Discipline is, is not affirming uh, at this particular point. So how do we think about that? And how do we deal with that in a way that's um, that's healthy? So I think that's that's a question that I, I would love to hear a response to, uh, is is how do we, knowing that we are, we are are in a space and in a place that is not completely resolved yet. Maybe that's the right word uh, and hasn't come to full terms with it. How do, how do we still move forward in healthy ways? So what would be some thoughts there? Um, as a non-Methodist who loves Methodist, um, <laughs> um, I really think that those of you on this call who are affirming and cisgender straight are uh, groundbreakers. Um, you're dealing with the largest obstacle in this present generation um, when it comes to church relations. Um, and so I think by creating that voice of support for the community, uh, you're doing a whole lot. Um, I think it's different for me as a member of the Metropolitan Community Church because our state, you know, founded by and for the LGBTQ. Um, but I, but, but I've really learned to respect the work of uh, cisgender straight people uh, who are embracing um, the um, reconciling ministries um, and affirming. And I think the most important thing is to stay strong and to move forward because, I mean, if you look at the history of the church. You have done a lot more than 90% of the other form of Christendom. Um, so uh, my recommendation to you is to stay firm, 
uh, stand your ground. Uh, many of us are so grateful. Um, I just met a young man the other day who is a Puerto Rican young man who's a Methodist um, and has just uh, found support from his pastor. And his faith was so lit up. And that was just like, I was like, like he had no idea that, that I know Methodists from Canada, you know. Um, it was just beautiful. So don't give up on your work. Stay strong um, because you are a groundbreaker and a mover and a staker uh, for what is so needed today. Research shows that Gen Z um, and millennials have stopped going to church because of the anti-queer theology, and you're looking to change that. So God bless you. Stand firm and, and, and go forward. I don't know if I fully answered the question, but I, I am speaking from my heart. And I appreciate exactly what you're saying, and I think it's very true. And then, Kathleen, something that you said, I think we all need to continue to recognize that this is a journey, right? The, the issues, all you take any ism, it's a journey. It, unfortunately, it's not something that we can flip a light switch and just make it right. And by the way, I, I think I, I want to say this as a delegate to General Conference and somebody who's been in this for a bit, friends, if I don't believe it will, I'm just being honest here, I don't believe in 2024 that we will necessarily get to a place where we will remove the language. Could happen. I hope it happens. I'm not sure that it will happen. I do believe that there will be steps that it's going to take us to get to that in 2026 or 2028. But, but, but here's my point. We are closer now than we've ever been. You pick any of the isms. Um, it, it's not a light switch. It's a journey because it's it's got to change people's hearts and minds. So, Kathleen, I don't know if you've got some thoughts on that, about it being a journey or not. But if there's any trip, tips or tricks, it would be great. Thank you, Alice. Um... Yeah, I think, I think what you said about it being a journey felt pretty complete. When I go back to the question that you asked, um, I, I just wonder about acknowledgement, you know, what stands in the way of acknowledgement. Um, in my line of work, I am not um, affiliated with the United Methodist Church, but in my line of work, um, acknowledgement is like a power. If we can acknowledge what's happening in the room, then we have a course for which to go and I think I heard Reverend Christie say, we have acknowledged. It sounds like it sounds like there's been a lot of conversation, right? Um, and so, you know, just really encouraging that acknowledgement. And, and also um, for those of us who are aware of the obstacles that uh, Black people, Latino people, uh, LGBTQ people face within the church, what stands in the way of acknowledgement? Exactly. Erwin, any other questions or thoughts? I'm not seeing them. We have a couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to end the podcast today at 1 p.m. Um, I guess I have a question. This is maybe a question for Alice, for Stanley, for Kathleen, for everybody. Thinking about the fact that on this call, there's not only clergy, but there's also laity. And I love our laity. Don't get me wrong. I love being a pastor. I love having congregation members. But sometimes congregation members are very difficult, very challenging. They have expectations no. that are unhealthy. <laughs> no, so, say it. Say, no. say it. Say it. Say it. So I wonder if you can offer any advice to, to laity, any words of wisdom as we pastor um, a con congregations that sometimes can be a little challenging. 
no, the first response that I would have, because I see it. I mean, and, and actually, if I'm honest, I've been there, right? I, I have been that lady in the past. I, it's not, not something I'm necessarily proud of, but, you know, I, I've been there. My first thought is think before you speak. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're saying. Think about what the impact could be. And, and you know, clergy have this um, amazing, uh, and, and Christy, you touched on this, Their expectations are so high in so many ways, and it comes from so many areas, but the one that just always stands out for me is every year when I go to annual conference and we go through the ordination, it's the reminder, do no harm, right? I mean, that is that is a vow. That's not just something that you say, yeah, we're not. No, that's a vow. That's a lifelong thing, right? That's a lot of weight to put on anybody because harm can be in so many different ways. I think laity need to take the same thing and say, do no harm. Let's think about what we're doing, uh, you know, before we say it. A, a very quick example, you were talking about SPRCs, and, you know, <clears throat> they can get a little goofy. I was listening to a, a clergy that was uh, in the process of, of, of going through ordination, <clears throat> and uh, and he, he said, you know, I'm single, you know, I've been signed to this kind of a rural church. He said, it was, it was all well and good until they started looking in the windows to make sure that I was keeping the house in order and, and that kind of thing. And, and I thought to myself, would you want someone doing that to you? So when you, as laity, as we think about this, it's, it's not just the golden rule, it's the platinum rule. You know, would you want some, are you, are you treating your clergy? Are you working with your clergy in a way that you would hope that they would read, you know, respond to and work with you is this the way you would want to do it and it, it doesn't make sense uh what we're doing so yeah we're we're we've got responsibility and work to do and i'm hopeful that again by dialogue and being able to raise these these kinds of conversations that we can we can talk about how clergy can be better partners we are doing one thing in the florida annual conference that i'm really proud of uh derek uh scott the other co-lay leader and I have kind of put together these four P's and it's purpose, practice, partnership. Partnership is a big P and, and then passion and, and helping laity to understand how we need to live into those four P's. And, and the biggest partnership is the one that we develop with our clergy. Well, it's a 1.01 p.m. And I think that we've covered a lot today. I want to thank Alice and I want to thank Reverend Stanley. I want to thank Kathleen and Pastor Christie for your time. I feel like this could be a conversation that we can have for another hour. Um, but I really am praying for everyone here. I pray that you would have strength for this journey that we're on as clergy. It's a challenging one. I pray that you would find some time to rest. I pray that you would reach out to Kathleen, Christy, or Esteli, or even Alice, if you need any additional resources that we would love to support you with. And we also encourage you to share this podcast once it gets posted. And we want to thank you so much for coming today. And just know we're praying for you. We're thinking about you. And we really hope that you live healthy lives, that you thrive in ministry, that you, and your family's thriving. And I um, just want to let you know we're here for you and to support you in any way that we can. So feel free to log off at this time. And that ends today's um, podcast webinar. Thank you.